Welcome to another episode of Pod for Good, a podcast where we hear from the change agents making Tulsa and the world a more vibrant and inclusive place. I'm your chief philanthropod, Jesse Ulrich. And I'm your newly re-promoted vice admiral philanthropod, Chris Miller. And today our guests are Ariel Davis and Colby Webster, the two co-hosts of Focus Black Oklahoma, whose goal is to bring attention to stories that aren't typically found in mainstream broadcast media. This is actually the second time we interviewed them, but sadly the first interview was sacrificed to the gods of technology. We talked to Ariel and Colby about how Focus Black Oklahoma had to pivot in the age of COVID, the intersection of urban design, city budgets, and systemic racism, and things white people don't know. Enjoy. We are very excited to have Colby Webster and Ariel Davis from Focus Black Oklahoma on the podcast today. Colby, Ariel, hello. Hi. Howdy. <clears throat> All right. This, this is going great. <laughs> okay. Strong intro, so, Jesse. Yeah, strong intro. One of my best. Definitely. Okay. <laughs> Serious note now. All right. As listeners to our podcast might remember, we had we had Q on a couple months ago to talk about Focus Black Oklahoma sort of before it had gone live and it has now it has now gone live and been around for a couple months but after your second episode the coronavirus hit (laughs) and so my first question to you is what has it been like having to turn what was sort of focused like oklahoma into a series that you can do when we're all stuck at home it's been really really interesting i don't think it's been unlike what it's been for the rest of the world obviously it's posed a lot of challenges for us because we can't bring people in studio and so we can't do and we can't go in the studio to record so very quickly we had to figure out how to create a and launch a digital platform sort of like build the boat as you're sailing but it's actually been really interesting and fun for me in some ways because of covid and all of the disparities that are being highlighted because of COVID and how communities of color are being disproportionately impacted. I think it gave us a good opportunity to talk about some things that maybe people hadn't considered, especially in regards to like systemic racism and things like that. Because it, if COVID-19 did nothing else, it showed us all the ways in which the system was failing or working exactly as it was designed to. So on the technical side, made things more complicated, but on the story side, uh, I think much more compelling and interesting and easier to tell. So I remember from our interview with, with Q, he mentioned that one of the goals was to try to highlight and focus on more positive stories that do often get left out of the media, especially focusing on Black Oklahomans. With so much negativity going on in the world right now, has it been difficult to find those kind of stories to to highlight? Yeah, I'd say so. I mean, I think in transitioning to not being able to go to the studio, the world also kind of set ablaze too. So finding kind of joy in the consistency of Black deaths and the lack of accountability to any party involved has not been easy. (laughs) So to answer your question, it's just not, it's just not easy to find a lot of positive stories in the midst of everything going on right now. I think it's been a big mental health check for me, for sure, just because so many issues kind of started or were exacerbated by COVID, but then presented themselves in so many ways around race, not just because of the Black Lives Matter protests that were happening, but because they were inextricably linked. And I guess that kind of presents a complex web of thought. But I mean, put more simply, it was just one thing after the other, after the other, after the other, connected to the last thing, connected to the last thing over and over again. (laughs) So personally, it's been pretty difficult. I I would also like to add, though, I do think that because Donald Trump decided to kick his campaign off in Tulsa during the middle of a pandemic, during the weekend of Juneteenth, it really, I think you got to see a lot of what I think a lot of Black people know about Black culture, that even in the midst of all of our pain and trauma, like historically, we've been able to find ways to celebrate one way or the other. Although I hate that, like, I hate the way that we got to have that sort of attention. I would much 
have preferred that Focus Black Oklahoma be able to like highlight all like the black joy that just exists without Donald Trump being in Tulsa or how we overcome when it comes to like police accountability and just like different things that we see happen because of systemic racism. I do I do appreciate that the spirit of who black people are was definitely shown why the world was watching and expecting us to I guess fall into the narrative that the media has spun about black people so long that they're irrational and violent and <laughs> and can't be reasoned with and don't know how to have a good time, which I think we just kind of I don't know that we laid that argument to rest, but we definitely made it hard uh, for people to continue to spin that narrative. So I do, I will say in the midst of everything going wrong um, at the same time, like it was really cool to see people sort of gathering and being like, what? I'm not even going to worry about what's going on, going on over there. I'm happy with what I have here. And there's an entire community of people who are here to celebrate with me, regardless of what's going on, like less than a mile away. My next question was going to be this anyway. So let's talk about this since Colby already brought it up. This moment we are living in, right? From, uh, I'm trying to think of what the first moment would technically be. There's going to be 50 years of research on this particular moment and when it, when it truly started and why it's happening the way it's happening. But let's say late April, right? From late April till May 25th, which was, which was my birthday, which is now going to have an interesting anniversary date to it every year. Why... Why this time? It's not like it's not like police have just now started killing black people for no reason. Why these particular events? Is it because is it because everyone's at home and like not necessarily working all the time that they have the energy to notice injustice? Is it just that or the ability to ignore it? Yeah. Is it the fact that just everyone videos everything now and so nothing goes unfilmed? Mostly, we 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 as two white people are asking you two as black people why this is happening, right? And you don't have to you don't have to know the answer. We just don't want to put forth the answer because we don't know. I don't have an answer. It's been really it's been interesting for me to sort of watch things unfold. I have seen people that I went to college with who I mean I've been saying this stuff for years. Like this is I was the loudmouth person that was just like white privilege is real. White supremacy is real. Pacific racism is in everything. And everybody was like, wow, this this chick is hyperbolic and crazy. And now all of a sudden, <laughs> it seems like people are awake. And I, I don't know. I'm really curious about it. Part of me thinks it's just a trend. Like, I really do think it's, it's the thing to talk about right now. And if you are not talking about it, you're you're a person that's either not in the know or has explicitly chosen a side like from just trying to remain neutral and not saying anything. Like one of my favorite things that Jesse Williams said during the one of the BET awards, one of those years of awards, was that it is not the burden of the brutalized to comfort the bystander. And I think that a lot of people are now understanding that they've been a bystander in this whole conversation. And when you see something as explicit as somebody's knee on someone's neck for almost nine minutes, eight minutes and 42 seconds, that's undeniable in some ways. Now, why that's more undeniable than all of the other videos that have surfaced over the years, I can't I can't speak to that because I was traumatized by each of those things. All of those were human lives, in my opinion. But maybe it is because people are sort of forced to deal with it because, like, what else are they going to do? Just, like, continue to scroll through Facebook and watch cat videos and... By the way, I don't know if you guys have seen this documentary on um, Netflix. I think it's called Don't. I don't know if I can cuss on this show, so I don't. don't with uh, yeah, you, you, you can. I don't fuck with cats. I saw that and I was like, if we could get white people to organize around black lives. <laughs> oh my god! <laughs> wow. The way wow. they did <laughs> around this person, although he was terrible, and all of that. I'm, I'm happy he's no longer killing people and not in, in cats either. But still, it was just, I don't know why all of a sudden it's like, it's real for people. It's been real for me. I think to add to that, like, like, I, I think it's just the, it's because of the internet. Like everything has been compounded and, and we still have a hard time acknowledging that it was just 60 years ago that why people really got the bulk of their rights or got them back to a degree after reconstruction. So it's like now we see 
I, I really think it's just that white people collectively have seen these hashtags, which are these people's lives come up over and over again. And it's like, maybe in the first few years, it was like, well, this happens, or maybe this is awful, but like, what can I do about it? And now it's just like, we're all seeing each other's Instagram posts, Facebook posts, and just realizing that like, this is really getting out of hand. And I mean, like, I think as black people, we, we, we've all known, but we just weren't collectively believed enough to galvanize action from all parts of the community. And I think now with everything that's going on with like ICE and immigration, with the, the real shit that natives have gotten for <laughs> hundreds of years, and then for us to be, for, for black and brown people collectively to be able to easily acknowledge and be confronted by their own generational genocides like it it i think there's a lot of solidarity in that and then white folks have been a little bit more privy just because information gets around a lot faster now so that that's what i would chalk it up to but that doesn't necessarily mean that that's the answer but like people will message me on instagram about like how how to navigate x y or z who to support nonprofit wise, who to support as far as the black and brown community. And I'm like, I don't have the answers, but like people are posting this content on the regular now, like sure enough, soon enough, like there will be a graphic that shows you all of the black and brown dispensaries in town or all of the black and brown restaurants in town. And like, I think after this moment, at least we'll have like some sort of economic understanding of uh, or, or emphasis on economics within black and brown communities and how we can collectively support each other a little bit stronger or just having that that new emphasis on spending in these communities to support these communities not just showing up to city council or just posting something on instagram or facebook but spending your dollar. I, I definitely think I'm going to put on my historian hat for a second. And I think post election of 2016, there was a, there was a uniting of sort of social justice groups around the fact that, that we all had one enemy to attack now our current president. <laughs> yeah. And like that, that combined with what you both just mentioned, like it just being in people's faces more often. I think that, that, that combined with the fact that everyone it's sort of stuck at home being forced to see this led to a lot of people who just sort of go through their lives thinking like, well, that doesn't affect me. I'm not a bad person necessarily, but like I'm just living my life, doing my thing now can't avoid asking themselves hard questions about themselves. Well, and let's be honest. I mean, white supremacy has become more blatant in the last four yeah, years. I it's mean, true. It, true. I'm not saying it wasn't there before because it obviously was, but it was for a lot of people, for, subtle enough that they could ignore it. And it's for, for white people, for we white people. Say. Yes. For white people, it for was white subtle. people to ignore it, it was subtle enough to them they could ignore it. And it has become so blatant and so obvious that even well, I won't say even the most clueless white person, because there's obviously still people ignoring it, but <laughs> for a lot of people who are at least attempting to pay attention and have somewhat of good intentions, now it's impossible for them to ignore anymore. Yeah. I mean, I can tell you as a Jewish person, the amount of times Nazi imagery comes up via the Republican Party has like jumped tenfold in the past four years. So usually it was like once or twice a year and then people would shut it down. And that's not the case now. Like we used to agree that Nazis were bad. That's an argument we have to have again now. I'm like, what? I, I thought we settled this. Yeah. Did, Nazis bad. When did, we, when did we say that this was going to be a thing again that we were all okay with? Yeah. Yeah. I'm like, I didn't agree to this. <laughs> That's when we said it. But related to that, I, I think it is, it's always been interesting to me that it seems like one of the most powerful forms of systemic racism is really how, based on how history is taught, because you see that when, when things come up now. Things as simple as people wanting to rename our, uh, the uh, bases and tear down statues and people are like, well, this is history. It's like, well, actually, most of those were 
built it, put up or renamed in like the 40s and 50s and after World War One or after World War Two during the rise of the rise of the KKK. So it's not like these are true historical items that were representing some group of soldier right after the Civil War. No, these were literal tools of white supremacists that were put up in the recent history. But because we don't talk about that, people just assume that they know what the history of those things are. Obviously, in Tulsa, we have a very specific example of that with the Tulsa race massacre, that history has is either ignored or twisted, it seems, to keep a certain story in place. I mean, I was just having a conversation the other day about how like, our current reality is really evidently twisted in a sense. Like we, we have a brown sheriff who will say that immigrants need to just come in legally when there is no longer any legal process to, 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 to get being a part of this country. And so there are people here who have been caught in limbo, right? And then we have a black police chief who will say that bias isn't a problem within our police force. And it's just, it's just odd that you can be watching these arguments be made, knowing that your community quite collectively feels completely the opposite. And, and, and I don't know if I have the, the language to connect that directly to white supremacy, but I mean, to be able to disregard consensus to be able to continue to really play communities on how investment is made or not made through these kind of figureheads that supposedly represent shared experiences. It, it's just, uh, it's a really bizarre time. And it, it's only pro- more proof that, or evidence that, you can build these statues and these monuments way after the fact to support white supremacy and kind of infect the, the collective consciousness to, to, to deem these as important. And then over time, maybe in, in, in a myriad of ways of how it affects the community, but it, it presents these kind of figureheads where this sort of rhetoric is is easy to get away with, I suppose. I would just sort of just add to that, Colby, like you're tying it back to white supremacy. I think in a white supremacist structure where the intention is to absolutely maintain power, but you realize that you have masses of people, masses of people of color who you need to somewhat keep calm and controlled. Often what you see happen in organizations you saw this in like rooted in slavery, you prop a person of color, a black person or a Latinx person or whoever into a position of power and authority. And really that the job of that person is to keep the masses of people calm, to maintain the status quo of the white supremacist structure. And I think that white supremacy by its nature is so inherently backwards thinking that it's, it's thought that we have a saying in the black community that um, all skin folk ain't kin folk. So we're not, but I think if you're a white supremacist and you really do, that that means that you're going to think that the group of people that you're dealing with are, really do have an inferior intellect, then you think that they will fall for those sorts of things. And then I also think it makes it really easy for you to have a, I mean, I've had this in my own experience. Like I can say something that is pretty much common sense to any other black person or person of color. And I can say that in a space of like white leadership and they think it's revolutionary, but that inherently is kind of white supremacist because like, I don't have an inferior intellect. I'm not saying anything any different than this group of people. I just know how to code switch well enough and say it in the language that you deem as professional and valid enough to communicate with you in a way that you think is the only right way or professional way. And because of that, you're willing to give me all these accolades and privileges that you wouldn't give to the masses of people that I'm actually here to represent because you truly don't see them as your equal. 
you truly think that you need me as a person or Colby as a person or somebody else as a person to explain these things that are really somewhat complex, but not not really when we get to the core of them. If we just begin to question things, why we have set society the way up, why we've been socially conditioned the way we have to believe what does professional really mean? Who, who wrote that story? Same with history. Whose perspective was that written from? I think when you are sort of, when you're in that structure and you really have it as a belief system that this is the standard, it's really easy to prop people of color into positions of power only to keep the masses of people calm and to be your mouthpiece because you are saying that you don't need to learn to communicate with them. They must learn to communicate with you. I mean, like every every repressive regime does that. They put someone from the group they're oppressing in charge of that group, one, so they don't have to do it, and two, to make the group infight amongst itself, right? Yep. Again, another thing the Nazis did. So what, what's been fascinating to me over the last couple of months is the things I didn't realize other white people didn't already know, like code switching, for example. I'm like, wait, you didn't know minorities have to do this, have to sound white? Can you please to, to like, add in? that as a segment onto the podcast? <laughs> yeah. Yeah. What? Uh, things I thought white people already knew? <laughs> All right. Uh, I need someone. Listen, listeners. I need. I need. I need a like a, a segment drop for that. So if you are good at writing music, I need a things I thought white people should know musical drop. Get on, people. All right. Yeah, I mean, because I mean, one like like literally NPR has a podcast called Code Switch. The the idea that there is a a way that to succeed in America, you have to sound that you have to talk that you have to dress like to fit in is it's been so blatant to me for a long time that again i'm like oh wait yeah people regular white person growing up in south tulsa would never know that uh, a latinx person has to do that or a black person has to do that or an immigrant like an immigrant from anywhere has to do that right like anytime oklahomans hear an accent that is foreign they're like whoa foreign not to not to stereotype an entire state Uh, (laughs) but like, but what, what astounds me still is like right now, right? Things that I just thought were just too small to ever fight over, like Aunt Jemima or Old Ben or the Redskins are actually now in the process of being changed. I'm like, again, why now? Like Aunt Jemima has been, been racist forever, right? <laughs> the Redskins have, the Redskins as a name has been racist forever. So is it just that? M- moneyed interest groups like advertisers and whatnot want to appear progressive so that they're fighting these things or are they actually progressive? And again, I don't think this is a question we have the answer to, but I'm curious about your thoughts on it versus mine. One thing my hat is off to for millennials is we're not really here for the check the box bullshit optics. Like a lot of companies are making statements about Black Lives Matter or just trying to be like saying that they're going to have all these diversity and inclusion inclusion initiatives. And I find that, I mean, we're just really not here for it. It's like, okay, but also show me your leadership board. Like, let's look at your org chart. How many Black people do you have working in customer service positions only in your organization? What is management looking like? So I do think that there are a lot of people who are trying to to check that box optically, um, because historically that's, I mean, that's been okay. We've been okay with performative gestures. I also think that language around white supremacy and racism is evolving. And so we have now have terms like, oh, that's performative. Like it's great that you paint Black Lives Matter on the street, but if you don't have any policies in place to actually protect Black lives, whether that's at the hospital that you work at to make sure that Black women are being listened to um, when they say that they're in pain or having symptoms so that we have like something like better Black maternal health outcomes. Or if that's a policy in a company where people of color are now allowed to report their managers without fear of retaliation because you put some sort of anti-retaliation policy in there. So I feel like we are now in a time to where optics aren't going to be good enough. I don't know what your news feed looked like yesterday for the 4th of July, but mine was just black AF. Like (laughs) (laughs) everybody was still kind of like celebrating Juneteenth and just talking about all of the progress that we need to make as a nation. So I think optically, like a lot of people are going, it's going to be one of those, oh, y'all tried it, but it didn't work with us because we want, we want actual changes that are going to help people um, at every level. 
Yeah, just to paraphrase, like the conversation has evolved, whether it's our community having better language to be able to explain certain white behavior or the fact that it's easily spreadable on like and shareable on Instagram and a little infographic, the training air quotes for diversity, equity, and inclusion to an extent can be had by just listening to black and brown people on the internet. And there's this whole thing about listening to black leadership in the midst of all of this and kind of not allowing a movement to be led astray in so many ways. And I, 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 I don't, I don't know. I just like all that said to say, just the conversation has evolved. Like whenever the protests started in Minneapolis, like it, there was far more empathy than I had ever seen with the protests, with, with protests revolving around another black death. The, the, conversation quickly turned to like, well, we've seen this happen before. Like their pain is clearly valid. Like if you look at history, like it, it's only building up to this over and over again. So like, why don't we actually do something about it instead of demonizing this, this very valid expression of emotion? And, and, and I've been surprised every step since then about how watching the conversation evolve from like white ignorance, white ignorance and complacency to like, ah, shit, like maybe we should do something (laughs) or listen, be a little bit more active, like everything, everything about this moment seems to me to be an evolution of the conversation because we've seen it all before but at least maybe because of COVID, we took the time to see the nuances of why everything is kind of happening the way it is. I also, just to add to that, Colby, I think this is probably a good lesson in like how privilege sort of works because it's not that black and brown people haven't been saying this for years, but all it's, yeah. again, when all of a sudden all the white people jump on board with Black Lives Matter, people are like, wait a second, maybe... Maybe they do matter because my my white mother says they matter. Now my sister and all my friends are saying they matter. And so now all of a sudden this conversation has become national um, and international when the bystanders decide that they're just not going to be on the sidelines. Like I when they when they recognize that their position is truly not neutral, like it truly does move the needle forward in some way. There's so many things that again are going to come out of this, but like the the narrative, right? We talk about historical narratives and how stories are told. It's almost like certain things had to happen in a certain order to break a narrative for people to realize, like, oh, I was wrong about this story, right? Ahmad Ahmad Arbery being shot in Georgia, right? That follows a narrative, right? Like black people not treated well in the South. That's anyone who pays attention to the news would know that, right? But Minneapolis, like uh, uh, white America's view of Minneapolis, is not that, right? And so that even though it's there, it's one, even it's, it has a very racist history, yeah. right? But we don't, we don't, white people don't think of it that way. Right. Because that's our privilege. Like, I almost think how many things had to break the narrative that that neutral group, which isn't actually neutral, how many of those things had to happen in a row while everyone was stuck for them to finally be like, okay, I get it now. My privilege was to not concern myself with this issue. Well, until and as, this moment. as mentioned earlier, I mean, COVID has made it so obvious the, systemic racism, especially in things like like healthcare and infrastructure, that once again it's become too hard to ignore. I mean, there is there are daily statistical data that is getting reported everywhere that shows you these health disparities. And so it becomes impossible to ignore once again. Yeah, it makes me one of the things that I one of the issues that I think I have like, I love data culture, like, as I'm sort of a research nerd, so I love quantitative data and that it can show us that a phenomenon is exists. I hate it that it can't tell us why that phenomenon exists. And one thing that I don't like about the way we sort of are moving towards data culture is it's, it's making it to where people of color, uh, women, anybody, anybody who's from a marginalized group, those experiences can only be heard in large numbers. So this negative issue has to traumatize a multitude of people for it to even be believed that it's occurring, 
which is something that I, I wish we could begin to move away from. I've seen how that impacts things at the city because it's like, okay, it's not until this happens to a hundred people or we have an 11 year health gap between people who live in North Tulsa, like life expectancy gap between people who live in North Tulsa and South Tulsa. It's not until we've lost all of those lives and that in large numbers that we can say, okay, this is an issue that we need to solve. Like, and I'm not saying that quantitative data doesn't have its place in purpose and value. I'm just saying I really wish we could bring the qualitative piece and marry those two things together so not as many people have to endure the trauma or the suffering that they do before anybody decides to take any sort of action to fix things that are wrong or corrupt in the system. One topic that's kind of related to all that, and Colby, I know this is something that it's close to your heart that you post a lot about, and that is the intersection of urban design and how how budgets how cities spend their budgets and and how that intersects with with racism could you talk a little bit about that on that yeah (laughs) ariel and i wasn't going to bring it up (laughs) sorry my bad (laughs) i'm glad you uh, took that direction i mean like it's really interesting how like we not just the city of tulsa but most major American cities don't build their cities. They don't create services, etc., for their citizens first. They they try to do so much at a, at a bird's eye view, which involves like buying tracts of land, trying to make all of these strategic pieces of the city come together and operate in such a way to bring in a stronger tax base or help this industry move into town and make them as cushy as possible in whatever corner that they're going to be in. But we, we at, at the human level, at the pedestrian level, there are so many problems in Tulsa that could just so easily be addressed and and have such a high return on investment. But for some reason, we don't consider like the, the, the human experience first. We, we're, we're like vying for Tesla. We're painting the golden driller instead of improving health outcomes through some really basic amenities for this health expectancy gap. We're signing contracts with ICE instead of bringing communities together to make them more resilient. It's it's really interesting how economic development in the city of Tulsa, but again, probably all over America, is more concerned with or, or is at a direct contrast with community resiliency. Like like the, the these poli- policy in at both ends are just or I, I guess for economic development just always seems to be at the loss of just addressing concerns that are right here on the ground that could improve the lives of so many or maybe even so few but like trickle down to help others like. I, I still don't understand why the city of Tulsa can't decide to just do a an economic corridor like Cherry Street or 71st, hope it's not like 71st, but like Cherry Street, Brookside, et cetera, just on the north side and allow the community to have like a hub where ideas can build, businesses can build, infrastructure can build, a tax base can build, and then turn into a stronger community, a stronger tax base, etc. But for some reason, the, the, the immediate idea is like that'll either take too long or it'll cost too much money, but instead we'll spend who knows how much to get Tesla here and just, just do all of this work for another entity from outside of the state trying to bring people from outside of the state instead of creating a beautiful city that people actually want to be in and stay in and build it. So through, through an urban design lens, it just, it, it's, I, you can see how segregated the city is like so easily. It's one of the first things you'll, you'll notice. And then 
you start to see like, oh, like we've had however many decades to address this, but we continue to just come up with some really, well, I, I wouldn't say we, I, I'd say white leadership because it, it, in, in, invariably it's white leadership continues to ignore these, these kind of clear cut problems and go by an old playbook instead of just listening to people. I don't know how many times the city of Tulsa has had the black community, the brown community, North, East, West, whatever, had people sit in a room and contemplate like what would be some immediate benefits for your neighborhood and then just not acted on them or allowed 15 to 20 years to go by before using eminent domain to like ravage a neighborhood whenever there hasn't been any community input on it for like 15 years. And it's just the, the, there's this whole idea of a community first that is just completely absent that I think maybe speaks to what Ariel was talking about with qualitative data and how it has its place here, but we just keep not doing the right thing. I, I, I don't, I've, Chris and I haven't actually spoken about this at length, but so I don't know where he stands on the Tulsa trying to get Tesla, but like, we need that those t- that that tax money. Like, why are we giving tax breaks to a company that does not need it? Mm. That is just using it to compete against another city. Like, well, actually, they do need it. Uh, have you seen their their quarterly books? They haven't turned a profit true. yet. So, yeah, yeah, like, yeah. So let's let's definitely bring them here. Right? Exactly. Uh, you know, like, uh, just, there's just so many holes in 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 this in this playbook. And it's just like, why would we do this? Like. Because at the end of the day, there's going to be a set of numbers. And it's like, we could have such a dramatic impact on our community just spending that money and watching a tax base be created versus effectively gentrifying the city of Tulsa at large by creating a new major employer that would employ the most people in the city and raise like home prices, possibly by a factor, a factor of four. And it's just, it, it's just weird. It, it's just not considering communities at all. And yet there's this kind of circuitous mental gymnastics that will get you to a point where you're like, oh no, Tesla is for the people. They're sustainable. It's this uh, new innovative technology and stuff. But those are all just unfortunately, ways of undercutting the voices of black and brown people in a community. Well, and it feels like, I mean, big gestures like that are the type of things that get and keep people elected, whereas long-term sustainable organic growth doesn't, right? Because it's hard to see. So people are often afraid about keeping their keeping their seat, city council, governor, mayor, whatever, you need to have a big thing to point to. And it feels like that's a lot of times what the focus is. What's this short-term gain I can get rather than what's long-term, to use your word, resilient and sustainable community. This is a great transition to the question I wanted to ask, which is about Ariel's time in the Office of Resiliency and Equity and working for the I, there's no adjective that can perfectly describe Devon Douglas, but effervescent <laughs> is the one I normally use. Uh, who is a who? Who is back in town apparently to run the the campaign of Greg Robinson? Really? So, yes, she com- she confirmed that to me on Facebook. Uh, I think yesterday actually. I was just like, oh, that's why you're back. She's like, yeah. I'm like, sweet. But so. Which is interesting. So the person you worked for in the Office of, Office of Resiliency and Equity is now back to run against the person who put her in that job. So with that loaded question, what was your time like there? <laughs> I It's interesting. I feel like I had two experiences at the city of Tulsa. One, just working in an office of all Black women was one of the best experiences I've ever had in my life. I wish that I mean, part of me was like, is this what white people feel like when they go to work and all of them are in the same room and it's comfortable <laughs> and easy and everybody can communicate clearly? And <laughs> so I, I really enjoyed my time there. It's funny. I, I just got I got off a call with her right before I was on this podcast and we were sort of just talking about our time at the city and what we want to see happen in Tulsa. It was 
it was the best of times. It was the worst of times. I think to be fully transparent, it was when I actually woke up that to the truth that politicians do care more about their relationships than they do the people that they're charged to serve. And so my exit from the city came when the truancy ordinance was being pushed forth. There were many people in the mayor's office who didn't agree with it. There were many people in Mayor Bynum's personal circles that didn't agree with it. It was a policy that was very reminiscent of like stop and frisk in that any peacekeeper, meaning a police officer, if suspected, if they suspected some teenager of being truant because they weren't in school with the way that it was written, they could just stop and ask them questions. So that means like, and we know that that could disproportionately impact people of color, obviously. The Latinx community would have been, that would have been really terrifying because any interaction with law enforcement cannot be benign and feels dangerous and malicious. So if a, let's say, Mexican mom is pulled, has pulled their kid out of school because they're sick that day, under the way that that policy was written, an officer would be able to stop them and question them, which... Um, we all know how over-policing and how all of those things end up. It ends up in mass incarceration. And when 287G was a thing, it ended up with people being deported. So my job at the city was the Title V Commission's assistant. So I tried to work really hard to organize all the Title Fives to make recommendations to the mayor about how they felt about that policy. Most were in disagreement. And it became really clear that he just didn't care. He was friends with the city councilor. And that relationship was going to take priority over all of the unknowns or all of the potential pitfalls of that policy. And that was when I decided to make my exit. I always say to people, there's a reason Devon Douglas doesn't work for the city of Tulsa. There's a reason that Ariel Davis doesn't work for the city of Tulsa. Uh, now we can add Christina De Silva to that list who no longer works for the city of Tulsa under the administration of Mayor G.T. Bynum. I have no problem saying that I endorse Greg Robinson as a candidate. I think that he is really going to fight for equity um, for all Tulsans. I have seen him working in those spaces for free and considering the health and benefit of the city without even being charged to do it or paid for it. And so I understand Devon's motivation for working on his campaign because I think one thing that was very clear to both of us when we started working together at the city is that we both actually wanted to do equity work. We didn't want to check a box. We wanted to see policy changes that were going to help the most marginalized and vulnerable Tulsans. And when it became clear that that was not necessarily the agenda, we left. Well, and it, it does seem like more yeah, people that's are... a good answer. It was great. <laughs> yes. It seems like more people are less willing to stick around somewhere where they feel like the the policies are not anti-racist or are not working towards equity. I, I know, Colby, you had a similar experience as well. I mean, it just seems like that you're seeing more and more people who are not willing to, to stay in a job anymore if they don't feel like it really fits what they're looking for. Well, I think at the end of the day, when it comes to black and brown people working at an institution that's not explicitly anti-racist, you're just putting the safety of that employee at risk just day in and day out. And like with my situation, community or communication was such a, a problem no matter what. So to be able to discuss issues around safety and race and how they were connected for a lot of our staff. If, 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 I, if we can't talk about that, then why should I be here? Like this was before COVID that to a degree, I'm, I'm risking my life to come into work for less than 15 an hour. Like, no, like it's not, it literally isn't worth it. I think in the past there, there wasn't a lot of room to wiggle around because it's like, I leave here, but then I just go into another burning room. Right. But I think What's been great about this moment is that a lot of people of color have been able to use the moment to be heard and to get get the words to 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 express all of this and and take a stance and maybe get other employees of color on the same page too and try and make something out of it. It's unfortunate because while this moment has been great and allowing 
those voices to have a platform or to be amplified, it's, it's, uh, it's equally depressing. Like just the fact that like we, it's 2020 (laughs) and we're finally having this conversation, but then COVID is like this big void where like, which might just, just isn't going to happen today or next week or the next board meeting or whatever, it's going to be on the other side of the next quarter when our budgets are actually back in line and stuff. But that doesn't mean that promises can't be made now. It's just, it's just, of course, another hurdle in getting past racism, I guess. (laughs) Yeah. Well, the, the, the cultural changes, right. will come a lot easier than I think the economic changes considering that we like, economically everyone well that shouldn't say everyone i mean a lot of people are in a strange economic place right now and so economically things have to sort of bounce back before economic changes can then be changed because right now like people are always going to care about themselves first right that's that's sort of the nature of white humanity i guess (laughs) i can only speak for myself there but so We've already been talking for 50 minutes. We should probably transition to our last part. <laughs> well, what it, I guess I could just jump in with that. I mean, one of the things that, that we like to talk about is just to see how, how our listeners can, can get connected with you and get connected with uh, Focus Black Oklahoma and get involved if it makes sense. Yeah, you can definitely follow us on all of our social media channels. It's going to be Focus Black Oklahoma. We are on Instagram, YouTube, Facebook. Am I forgetting anything, Colby? I don't think so. I think you can donate. TikTok, Snapchat. Yeah. Um, You on the snaps? Making snaps? (laughs) Not quite yet. (laughs) Um, You can go to tricitycollective.com slash donate to donate to the cause and help us do what we do. And yeah, just tuning in really, luckily for us, that's an easy answer. Like, how can you help is just like be informed and then. And share information. Yeah. (laughs) And share information. And then if you just want to find me, I'm under my actual name, Ariel Davis on Facebook. And I'm not even going to give my Instagram name because it's just not worthy for people to go check out that account. (laughs) Because it's mostly (laughs) of me. <laughs> but if you do go to my personal Facebook page, be prepared. I don't I don't believe in tone policing. So Yeah, I, I'd say the same. Um, yeah. <laughs> Both of you are excellent on Facebook. I enjoy it immensely. So I'm just like, yeah. <laughs> yeah. Yell at those people. I'm Colby Ari on Facebook and you can find my Instagram if you really want to, I guess. <laughs> We're all we're all just like yeah like we do Instagram but we're not good at it. Like, <laughs> I I think I'm decent at Instagram. I just I I'll say the same. I don't I don't feel like I tone police on Instagram, and I don't know if everybody's ready for that. And you know it, it's out there if you want it, but you yeah. Know. Colby is so much better with Instagram. Like anytime we do anything, I'm like, how do I how do I add to my story? Um, <laughs> Don't know if you guys know this, just like fun facts about Colby and I, we actually have the same birthday. Really? Yeah. yeah. We nice. found that out in a random conversation at a bar after <laughs> planning. <laughs> Pretty fucking wild. <laughs> what, well, what is this bar you speak of? What is that? Bachelor Hall. I'm so, I don't know why I'm embarrassed to say that because I feel like I should be. See, this is the burden of like just black blackness you're just like i should be i should say i was at retro but i wasn't i was i was (laughs) (laughs) right yeah (laughs) but uh, yeah it's it's crazy we 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 got the same birthday and there's some some odd alignments that are 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 interesting but like your last name on facebook is the first three letters of of her name for instance we're so connected (laughs) So, all the serious topics we talked about, when you're not pondering the long legacy of white supremacy or how badly Tulsa's designed for people to walk, what are you doing just to sort of keep your spirits up? What's your pop culture comfort food during this pandemic? I recently really enjoyed Fleabag on Amazon. That was an amazing show. (laughs) And 
again, somewhat burdened to burden to admit that I have a few shows that I don't, I, I will just out myself on this podcast that I hate that I really, really like because they're very problematic. So King of the Hill is one of them. Oh, nice. <laughs> I might as well just get it. Of this story before it breaks. <laughs> Breaking news. Because there are so many like racist problematic things in that show, but for some reason I do find it I maybe it's because it's kind of an entry point into a culture. I'm never gonna be a part of like blue collar like white culture. That is the only access point I'm gonna have. Um, so I'll do that. I definitely love reading. Just read a book called The Deep that I recommend. It's by a non-binary Black author, and it is about a mermaid culture that evolves out of the uh, transatlantic slave trade. So, super good. Yeah. I kind of have a similar answer, really. I want to add, Jesse, Tulsa's not just designed badly for people who want to walk. It's just designed badly. (laughs) fair point the grid is cool but outside of that it's like problems on problems but uh, at my house we we finished up the fourth season of insecure that was really nice we've been watching a lot of avatar the last airbender oh nice yep yep quality show back from middle school that we my partner had never seen before but it turns out is more relevant than ever Basically, you have a bunch of indigenous nations that are able to move water, rock and fire, air with their hands and movement. And then there's one nation, the Fire Nation, that decides to commit genocide against all other nations. And they're all got to figure it out. So when I'm not pondering the long legacy of white supremacy, I am enjoying it in cartoon form. <laughs> <laughs> I was gonna say, Fire Nation is white people. <laughs> You're not wrong. Yeah. And in the M Night Shyamalan version, I think all of them are white people. Yeah, yeah. yeah. it doesn't. <laughs> oh, it's just not a plus. <laughs> Terrible, terrible movie. All right. Well, thank you both for taking the time with us twice. Our listeners will not know that we attempted a recording a couple days ago that did not go well. A super secret podcast that if you uh, donate a million dollars on Patreon to Jesse, you can get. Don't tell me. And anybody. also the video. We might need you all to recreate this this recording we didn't do. Shh. It'll be fine. We'll have Colby walk around his house and record yeah. it. We'll be fine. A storm and body and everything. Well, Thank you both for joining us. And I'm going to have a lot of work to do on the show notes for this one, writing down all the things you mentioned, but that's okay. That's what I do. So yeah, just thank you both for your time. And I guess go enjoy July 5th. I don't know what people do today. So I have a, I have a Zoom wedding in 55 minutes so to watch. So it's a weird, it's a weird time. Thank you all for listening to our conversation with Ariel and Colby. To find out more about where you can find Focus Black Oklahoma and any of the interesting things they mentioned please check out our show notes and please remember to subscribe to this podcast anywhere podcasts can be found and telsa again please be safe out there wash your hands get it done and wear a mask Mm -hmm.